Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, January 10th. Of course, it's actually Wednesday, January 13th, or maybe even Thursday, January 14th, by the time all of you listeners are hearing this show in our quest at Cracked Rackets to help catch all of you listeners up on all of the incredible on-court action from the first week, of course, also in our quest to make up for some technical difficulties we had last week. We're catching you up on each day's events with a series we are calling our changeover chat. Been so fun to bring this back. Of course, I have broken down Thursday, Friday, Saturday's play thus far today. I'm going to be looking at Sunday's round of 16 matches and then a podcast you'll either hear later in the day today, tomorrow, whatever it may be, will be my final recap of Monday's quarterfinals, Tuesday's semifinals, and then of course Wednesday's finals from across the globe. Also on Friday, going to be talking to my friend and new Crack Rackets contributor Dave Gertler on the Australian Open qualifying results we saw over the past week. Of course, that was one of the big events happening across the globe. And, you know, a lot of those players now going to get the opportunity to either play their first Grand Slam or a significant milestone Grand Slam in their career. So, of course, we will break down those results on Friday. But, of course, the reason I'm able to do this podcast day in, day out is because of the phenomenal support we get from all of you listeners, the incredible uh, support we get from our Patreon family, and, of course, the help we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. If you need help updating your gear, finding that new racket, that new string pattern, maybe even it's a shoe type you want to change, you can turn to our friends at Midwest Sports, the kindest staff. They bring those Midwest values to their operation. And again, the best deals, the best equipment, the best prices, all can be found on MidwestSports.com. You use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. And best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, Midwest sports.com you use that promo code cr15 you'll let them know that we sent you there as well so as always a huge shout out to our friends at midwest sports now i know i've talked a lot about the same players through these early changeover chat shows i mean someone like maria sakari was just so impressive through the first three days in abu dhabi you've got someone like arena sabalenka who obviously hasn't lost in forever you've got a guy like sebastian cordo looking so good in delray beach but i want I wanted to change things up a little bit today, talk about some of the players that I maybe haven't mentioned yet so far on these mini-break podcasts. And the match I want to start with was a match that was phenomenal on the court, and I think bodes a pretty important, or I should say bears a pretty important result for us heading into the Australian Open. And that, of course, was the 7-6 in the third battle we saw between Alina Svitolina and Ekaterina Alexandrova on Sunday. Again, it was Svitolina capturing the match in the end she uh, ends up drop uh, she takes the first set 6-2 drops the second set in a breaker 7-6 was trailing Alexandrova at multiple points throughout the third set but ends up coming back taking the uh, 6-2 6-7 7-6 10-8 in the third set breaker decision over Alexandrova and you know, it's so funny because about a year ago, maybe 11 months ago at this time, I seem to remember a little bit of a collective panic about Alina Svitolina. Not that, you know, we thought she was going to fall out of the top 50, top 100, not a dramatic fall for her, but the question was for someone who had lingered inside the top 10 for two, three years now, uh, what more was there left to see for Svitolina? Had we reached her ceiling as a player? Is there more development still for her to undergo? Obviously, Alina Svitolina such an incredible athlete, right? Such a good mover, uh, so proficient off of both wings from the baseline, so good at turning defense into 
offense, not afraid, you know, to step up and hit approach shots, move forward to the net as well. Just a really well-rounded skill set, such a tough out. But, you know, last year to start the season, we panicked a little bit when she lost third round to Garbine Muguruza at the Australian Open. Of course, we learned a little bit after that that, you know, uh, Garbine Muguruza makes the final there. She's back in her top 10, maybe even top 5 form. Of course, then Svitolina went to Fed Cup, played a three-set match against Jaina Fett of Croatia, which obviously was not something you would expect from her. And then, uh, you know, loses in three sets to Annette Conteve. Now, Conteve goes on to have a fantastic year, but there was this three-week week stretch in February where uh, Svitolina, or I should say four weeks, she goes from that Fed Cup result to Joaquin where she loses a you know straight set quarterfinal match to now Habino, and Habino is a solid player, but that's not a match Svitolina should lose. Of course, the next week she lose to, loses to a qualifier by the name of Jennifer Brady. Now, obviously, again, Brady goes on to have incredible success during the 2020 season. Amanda Nisimova beats Svitolina the next week in straight sets in Doha, but you know, we all know how talented Amanda Nisimova can be. And then, of course, you know, Svitolina did follow it up with a title in Monterey, but you look at her wins in that event. You know, she beats Leila Fernandez. She beats Marie Buzkova in a three-set battle in the final. But, you know, probably not the most difficult title she's won in her career. And there was this panic, you know, pre, uh, or I should say, in the immediate aftermath of the season canceling is, okay, have we seen all we need to see from Alina Svitolina? Yeah, she's going to be really good, but does she have the upper echelon talent to compete with the best of the best on tour? Can she be a Grand Slam champion in a time when there are 15, 20 players in the women's game who are legitimately capable of, if they're playing their best tennis, winning the Grand Slam when they show up. Uh, and I think that answer still has to be yes, because you now, you know, extend for the play that began in August. And of course, Svitolina didn't travel to New York, but over these last 52 weeks, at least Svitolina is 24 and nine, right? She makes the quarterfinals of Roland Garros. She beats Alexandrova. She beats Caroline Garcia, a loss to Podoroska, which, you know, in retrospect, again, not too shabby, uh, given how well Podoroska was playing at the French Open. Now in Ostrova, she loses her first match indoors to Maria Sakari. Svitolina was the number one seed, but you know, we know how well Sakari has played. I've talked about it in the three previous shows, so I don't consider that a bad loss by any stretch of the imagination. And it's just, you know, you look at the results she had in Strasbourg in the immediate uh, restart of title. She won there. She beat Sabalenka. She beat Teichman. She beat Lynette. And she beat Rabakina in the final. That's a fantastic title for her. In Rome, she beats Pavlochenkova, Kuznetsova, before losing in the quarterfinals to Vondrusova. Vondrusova, of course, the 2019 French Open finalist. My point is is Alina Svitolina played really, really well down the home stretch, kind of, st- you know, stem the bleeding, you know, cut off the bleeding, whatever you want to say. Had, I, I don't know the exact term. I didn't make it past, I suppose, biology my freshman year of high school. That's when I realized I was done with the sciences, or at least those sorts of sciences. Anyways, um, you know, analytical skills, something I thrive at. And analytically, you look at the numbers Svitolina has put up, she has regained the form of her previous seasons. And it it was just, you know, to get to this match against Alexandrova, I know that was a big scene setter for Svitolina. And by the way, I want to set the scene for Alexandrova as well. That's why I chose this match. But 
She just does so many things well on the court. Now, Svitolina, you know, again, was the first serve percentage great in this match against Alexandrova? No, it really wasn't in it. She makes, I believe, uh, something like 57% of her first serves win 72% of those first serve points. So when she was able to get into her patterns, play plus one tennis, not allow Alexandrova to slap flat ground strokes from the baseline, and believe me, Alexandrova... When I say slap, that's unfair because that makes it sound unintentional. Alexandrova, she's got one speed. It's hard, flat, drives through the court, and, you know, the forehand, the backhand, she has weapons off of both of those wings. And, you know, Svitolina's athleticism just shined through throughout this match. Her ability to be in the outer thirds of the court and turn defense into offense, it's a really nice contrast to some of the power tennis we see from players like Alexandrova, Rabakina, Sabalenka, Osaka, and just, you know, in the end, that's what Svitolina did better than Alexandrova in this match. She got her to the outer thirds of the court. She disrupted her rhythm, played a little bit of slice on the backhand side, moved forward to take time away from Alexandrova. And look, Alexandrova had plenty of chances in this match. I mean, the big number for me, you look at it, uh, Alexandrova, where she struggled, only made 52% of her first serves, only won 58% of those first serve points. But, you know, she holds Svitolina to 20 of 50 on Svitolina's second serve points. When she was able to play plus one tennis, be the aggressor, again, those ground strokes for Alexandrova shine through, and you look for Alexandrova now 22-13 and 13 in her last 52 weeks. Of course, she won the title in Shenzhen to start last season, where she beat Muguruza, she beat Rybakina, she then goes to the third round of the Australian Open before losing to Petra Kvitova last year at the USO, or at the, in the New York run. She, you know, she didn't bounce back perhaps the way she was hoping to. She ends up taking losses to Christina McHale at the Western Southern, Katie McNally in three sets, seven, six, and a third at the U.S. Open. I'm sure she wants those matches back, but, you know, you look at the way she ended her season, seven, six, and the third loss to Conteve in Ostrava, seven, five, and the third loss to Elisa Mertens and Linz. Alexandrova has established herself as a tw- top 25 player on the hard courts, and it's because of her ground strokes. It's because what those weapons can be now. You look for Alexandrova, the serve is something she continues. Uh, to need to be more effective on. You know, she's never eclipsed 44% in t- or 45% on her second serve win percentage throughout her career in tour-level seasons. And, you know, her first serve percentage has hovered around 58% throughout her career. Now, there is big growth from her in 2020. You look at the previous seasons, 2018, she makes 55% of her first serves. 2019, that number's 57. 2020, that number's 61%. If that's the trend we continue to see for at Katarina Alexandrova, who, by the way, currently ranked number 33, only 26 years old. That's a really nice growth trajectory. That's low-hanging fruit. Make 65% of your first serve. She typically wins them throughout her career at at least a 68% clip. You're going to hold serves a lot of times doing that, and that's going to allow her to take the big rips on the return of serve like she likes to do, like she did here against Svitolina. But ultimately in this match, and sometimes it really is this simple. Katarina Alexandrova didn't make enough first serves in this match. Svitolina, such a good returner, by the way, I didn't mention that in her game. Uh, the depth she's able to produce, the you know the pace she's able to produce against such a springy athlete. 
Uh, Svitolina just wore Alexandrova down in this match. Uh, you know, Alexandrova really only has the one speed, and that is a concern, and it's why she has struggled on non-hardcourt surfaces in her career. But Svitolina continues to show off a wide skill set, can do so many different things, again, from all different locations on the court. This was a really impressive win for her to advance to the quarterfinals here at this opening event. And again, really good result for Alexandrova, who I think we have to take seriously now in any hardcourt event. She is a threat to beat any player, uh, you know, regardless of that opponent's ranking. And I just think in this one, Svitolina, again, has shown a really high level of late. Makes sense that she advanced to the quarterfinals here in what was a really fun victory over Ekaterina Alexandrova. That's match number one on the day. Match number two, someone I have talked about a little bit, but I haven't broken down, I don't believe, on this mini-break podcast, at least in depth of late during this 2021 season. Alina Rabakina, who was playing a different sport in her 6-3, 6-4 win over Daria Kasakina. And let's just be clear here for a hot second. Daria Kasakina is still working her way back from injury when you know but the former 23 or the 23 year old former top 10 player right and that top 10 it wasn't like she was 18 19 years old had one flukish result crack the top 10 no she did it back in 2018 at 21 uh, off of you know the base of some really good results during that season right she makes the final of Indian Wells she makes the final of Dubai she makes uh she wins her first I believe WTA title in or second WTA title in Moscow as well. And so, you know, the point is Daria Kasakina has an incredible skill set. She is a power player. She is someone who can move you to the outer thirds of the court. She is someone who's going to incorporate slice to get you uncomfortable. It didn't matter in this match. Again, Elena Rabakina, to go, to go back to this metaphor, it's not, I don't think she owns any property in the Osaka Serena Power Tennisville. Like, I, I don't think they, they have quite been like, you know, there's this house for sale at the edge of the block. It's not the best house. You need to redo the front yard. And honestly, the basement could use some work as well. And you're going to want to knock down that wall so you have a walk-in kitchen. But, you know, that house is for sale in the neighborhood, and, you know, they had a meeting. Sabalenka is now an officially full-time member of the community after her 15th straight win. Sabalenka, Osaka, Serena came together, and they were like, do we want to include Elena uh, in our neighborhood? And, you know, Petra Kvitova, who's obviously, you know, the most beloved member of this community, was sitting there like, oh, yeah, Elena deserves to be in for sure. Look at her results of late. I mean, look at what she's done over her last 52 weeks. Elena Rabakina has been an absolute stud, 23-10 and 10 in her last 52. We should let her in. And I don't think she has quite the, well, maybe she does as Petra Kvitova. I don't think she's quite the athlete as the Osaka, Sabalenka, Serena Quartet, but the power tennis she can play is a thousand percent on that tier. And you look in this match, Elena Rabakina makes 61% of her first serves, which is good. It's not great, but it's good. But look at these numbers on for, on serve win percentage. On her first serve points, she goes 23 of 30. On second serve points, she goes 15 and nine of 19. Again, overall, 38 of 49 on service points. That means she's winning 77.6% of those points. And when you do that, life becomes pretty easy for you as a tennis player. And it's just the plus one tennis she can play. I mean... She swallows forehands. You know, she'll take your pace, she'll swallow it, and just absorb it right back and, you know, dish it right back out to you with even more oomph behind the ball. It just, her forehand is 
it's delightful. She can go down the line heavy with it, inside in, inside out. Her ability to open up the court with that short angle cross-court forehand as well. Her confidence stepping into the backhands, driving them cross-court, but still opening up angles with that cross-court backhand. Her willingness to go down the line, her comfort moving forward. She shows off pretty sneaky good touch as well. And then, again, the ball explodes off of her racket during the serve. She just she can hit that top gear that so few players in men's or women's tennis can. She has that elite power. She can play with that sort of power tennis. And look, only faced one break point in this match. Now, was broken on that chance, but also created eight break point chances for herself, converted three of them. That's all she needed to do against Kasatkina because she was executing so well on the serve. And look, Kasatkina didn't even play poorly. Made 57% of her first serves, which isn't good, but it's not horrible. She won 66% of her first serve points. Again, good, not terrible. 46% of your second serve points. Not great, but not horrifyingly bad. And yet, Rabakina was just on her from start to finish. I mean, with all due respect to Kasakina, who tried to hit big to corners, who tried to play short angles, who tried to disrupt Rabakina's rhythm with slice, it didn't matter. Rabakina was just in the zone on this day. And again... I just am so impressed by her performances over the past 15 months. I mean, again, you look at what she did at the, uh, I believe, midsection of 2019 was when she won her first title in Bucharest, yes, on the clay. She then, of course, makes another final in Nanchung to end the season. And then last year, you know, final of Shenzhen to start the year. She follows that up by winning Hobart. She then makes back-to-back finals in St. Petersburg and Dubai in February. Of course, she makes the final on clay in Strasbourg before losing in three sets to Svitolina. Her power tennis translates on all surfaces. I haven't seen her on grass yet. I just, with the power she plays with, I can't imagine it's going to be a struggle for her. But I'm telling you folks, Elena Rabakina, 21 years old, currently 19 in the rankings. She's the real deal, folks. She is going to be a top 20 player, I think, for the rest of her career because of the power she can play with. And I do think... Do I think, uh, I, I don't know, I'm not ready to say she's a Grand Slam champion, but I do think she can be in the mix in the Australian Open. If the draw breaks, right, if she gets some players who, you know, like, I think Sophia Kenyon, Kenin, who we're about to talk about in, in next, I think Sonia Kenin's worst nightmare would be to play someone like, well, not worst nightmare, it's probably Osaka or Sabalenka, but Rabakina falls in that category where, you know, Kenin's going to move the ball around the court, of course, play variety, try to disrupt your rhythm, but... Rabakina's got that sort of FU power that it really wouldn't matter what Kennan's doing because if Rabakina is executing well, she's just going to hit Kennan off the court. And that is something worth noting uh, to start this season. So, again, really nice performance from Elena Rabakina. For Daria Kasakina, I still think she's going to work her way back into the top 50 this season. Uh, with Despite all the talented players out there, she's as, got as much racket talent as anyone. Uh, but this was just a dominant performance from Elena Rabakina to advance to the quarterfinals as well. Let me tell you, the power tennis played in the quarterfinals between her and Sabalenka will definitely be worthy of at least three minutes of conversation in our next mini break podcast. One other match I just want to break down quickly and less context more so than just the actual match we saw on court. Sonia Kennan probably played her best match of the season in knocking off Yulia Putin save a 3-6-7-6-6-4, but... It was tough sledding for the young American, the defending Australian Open champion, again, in this match, made only uh, 60% of her first serves, now was over 50% on both the first and second serve points, and held uh, Yulia Putin save it to 40.4% on her own second serve, but 
you know, both of these players, uh, five breaks on 12 chances. It was just, you know, Putin Seva had a bunch of chances. She was up breaks at multiple points in this match, up a break in that second set as well, I believe, had opportunities. I don't know if she had match points, but she certainly had a chance, I believe, to serve for the match. And just with all of the variety Kennan plays with, with all of the different things she can do to you, and I asked her about this, and you can go hear her answer in the from the presser we did from day one in Abu Dhabi, she just... She doesn't have a go-to weapon. Well, the thing is, her go-to weapon's her mind. That's the truth. And it is a go-to weapon because her mind is as brilliant and as analytical as any out there in the game. Her ability to, you know, incorporate a variety of shots, short angles, elevated top spins, slice, just drive down the line, all the different things she can do. Her The adjustments she can make mid-match is how she wins matches, but... It's the Spider-Man meme. Again, watching Putin Seva, who probably has a little bit better foot speed than Kennan. Maybe not quite, although she's got some pop. I don't think she has quite the arsenal of shots, although she can do a lot of different things. I just don't think she does them as well as Kennan. She's probably a slightly better mover, slightly less variety. And this led to some long physical points. And again, I just think for Sophia Kennan, Sonia Kennan, whatever we want to say, how difficult... Uh, she makes points on a on a match by match, point by point basis. It's just not easy for her to win matches. She has to incorporate her variety. Now, it's not hard for her to win match. You know, she it's uh, I should say it may not be easy to win matches for Sophia Kennan, but it's so hard for her opponents to beat her because of all of the different things we can do. And of course, that's a fine line to negotiate. And in this match, you see for Kennan seven double faults. She knew I have to be a little bit more aggressive on my second server. Putin save is just going to feast on it, and then I'm moving around and playing on her terms, and I do just worry with the Muguruzas of the world, the Sabalenkas of the world, obviously Osakas of the world, and Rescue coming back. I mentioned someone like Rabakina. They just have this overwhelming power that Kennan doesn't have, and so will we see a step back from Kennan during this 2021 season? It's something I've discussed with others throughout the tennis world. It's something we'll talk about in our Stock Up, Stock Down, Stock Hold podcast we are doing next week, but... I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued, folks, because Putin Seva did enough here to make Kennan uncomfortable. She kept her out of the center of the court. Yes, Kennan was also moving Putin Seva around, but Putin Seva was able to dish back everything Kennan was dishing at her. And we've talked about how well Julia Putin Seva has played of weight. This match, late, this match just it felt notable because Kennan feels very beatable right now. And I know, again, first tournament of the year, still finding her legs, still finding her bearings. You know, in Australia, it's a whole new Sophia Kennan. Sonia's going to be locked in in a way that she just probably wasn't here in Abu Dhabi. And she was open about it before the tournament. I'm here because I'm restless at home. I need to get some matches in before Australia starts. That was her reasoning. Uh, But her level of play, she's just leaving some balls short. There's just some, again, it's just, it, it felt a shade attackable and that's not something you usually say about Sophia Kennan. And so, you know, a great win for her to bounce back here again, face the adversity. Ultimately, Putin Seva didn't have enough weapons to break down Sonia Kennan, but there are a lot of players out there who do. And so I found it very, very interesting to see Kennan, yeah, I think it's safe to say, struggle 
against uh, Putin Seva in this match. Nevertheless, she advances to the quarterfinals. Those are your breakdowns from Abu Dhabi. I want to quickly just run through the rest of the results. And again, it's half the round of 16 here, or maybe the entire round of 16. It was the entire round of 16. So we've talked Svit- uh, Svitolina, Kenin, uh, and uh, Rybakina as victors. Your other winners on the day, Veronica Kudermatova, who we will talk about in the next podcast. Three-set win for her over Paula badosa Giber. You had Maria Sakari, who we've talked about plenty. Looks so impressive in her win over Garbine Muguruza. Sakari does have the athleticism where she moves so well. It doesn't really matter how hard Muguruza was hitting the ball. Sakari in the outer thirds in that match was just something else. And so that was a really good victory for her. Really nice week for Sarah Saribas Torma, who, as I mentioned, I think earlier, is just the litmus test. How good are you as a WTA player? Can you beat Sarah Saribas Torma? If you can't, you probably belong outside the top 50. If you can, you probably belong inside the top 50. Just the, you know, the discipline, her the backhand slices she'll throw at you, her movement abilities. She's a stud. And so a uh, really good win for her to continue her success here at the start of the 2021 season. Arena Sabalenka, who we talk about all the time, 2-4. and four over Own Jabor. You know, I talked about it. everything I said for Rabakina applies to Sabalenka as well. And ditto for Marta Kostyuk, who that was probably her best performance against tomorrow Zidanzik. Zidanzik just didn't have the weapons to hang with Kostyuk. And Kostyuk's, what, 18, 19 years old, and you already have the weapons to knock off uh, a Tamara Zidanzik, who obviously had a really impressive result uh, early in the tournament when she beat Jennifer Brady. That's a, that's a great win for Marta Kostyuk. And again, it's been such a fun and revealing uh, tournament in Abu Dhabi. So I look forward to continuing uh, to discuss it. And honestly, I will rewatch the highlights as I get my preparation underway for Australia. But that is the big women's event. I want to just break down one match from the men's side quickly. uh, And it's a match we saw in Delray Beach. Francis Tiafo. Uh, who we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast and who I actually did a match breakdown for on Patreon for our Patreon subscribers uh, for his, I think it was quarterfinal. Yeah, quarterfinal round against Cam Norrie. Tiafos look great over these past 52 weeks. I mean, he's 19-13 overall. I believe he got the challenger title, obviously, uh, in Parma as well. So he's actually, so that's, that, that's wrong. I think Tennis Abstract is missing some events from the end of last season on the ATP Tour. I'm pretty sure... He was a little bit better than 19 and 13. I want to say he was like 22 and 14 or something like that during his last 52 weeks. But the point is, you know, he's really reset the course. He makes that fourth round at the U.S. Open. He wins, and that's a hard court event. He makes, you know, wins a challenger on clay, beating a guy like Lorenzo Musetti and a Federico Del Bonis as well. He makes the semifinals of Nor Sultan at the end of the season, where he really, again, should have beaten John Millman, but did beat Gerasimov, Kasmenovic, and Quarantine Mute. Here is a three-set win for him over Bjorn Fertangelo, and I just think for Francis Tiafo, if you don't have the big serve, the big weapon that can expose Tiafo's forehand, or you don't have, I mean, or you don't have, you know, just again, the, the killer movement, the discipline where you can just kind of offset all the ways he wants to try to attack you. Francis Tiafo's a really tough out, man. I mean, I know he's not top 30 anymore, but I believe he's at number 62 currently in the rankings. And 
That feels about right, but it feels like Francis Tiafo's on the rise. The serve continues to prove itself as a weapon, and I believe I mentioned these stats maybe earlier in the week. I know it was on Patreon. His first serve win percentage has, you know, it started at 68.8% uh, and has stayed up there throughout his pro career. He's around a 70% win percentage on his first serves. His first serve percentage continues to improve as well. He was at 58% back in his first full pro season in 2017. He has since risen six. 61.2 in 2018, 65.4 in 2019. You combine what he did in ATP Tour matches with what he did on the Challenger Tour. He was right around, uh, I believe, 65% again last season. And so, you know, he's improving in the areas that are noticeably need, that noticeably need improvement. And you look for him against Fertangelo today. I mean, the first serve was where he thrived. Only made 56% of his first serves, which again, low-hanging fruit for improvement. Uh, but he went 40 of 48 on those first serve points. When he can execute that first serve, uh, he gets to play the plus one tennis. He gets to run around and has time to set up the big backswing on his plus one forehand. He can serve and volley and just impose his variety in a way that is it's really tough for opponents to, uh, I always say Francis Tiafoe, you know, I think he's better three out of five than two out of three sets because physically what he's capable of doing around the court now, you know, second serve was a struggle for him. He, he hangs some, hung some sitting ducks and, you know, for Tangelo, uh, holds Tiafoe to 16 of 37 on those second serve points. But Francis Tiafoe has been, you know, Francis Tiafoe's shown again, he, I think he, he rushed onto the scene so quickly, and then, of course, that quarterfinal in Australia in 2019. Expectations got a little out of whack for him, but I think he's working his way back towards the top 30, folks. I would be surprised. I mean, certainly I think he ends the season inside the top 50, but I think he's a guy who threatens to be seated at the 2022 Australian Open, and I know that's such a far way away, but just physically what he's able to do, the weapon that is, the serve, the variety he can play with. Francis Tiafo looks really good to start this season. Ditto, by the way, for Bjorn Fertangelo, who won 70% of his first serve points in this match, who obviously, uh, you know, is a guy who's still coming back from injury, who reached, you know, Fertangelo, I believe, was a career high of number 99 back in 2016, and then has had so many injuries disrupt his rhythm since then. But look, I, I can only say what I've seen with my eyes over his last three events. In Kerry, he lost a first-round match to Jack Sox, 6-3. and three. That was a legitimate ATP-level match. I mean, Sock, the serve, the forehand, Fertangelo was hanging with him, was redirecting pace. It's such a well-rounded game, right? Fertangelo may not do anything great, but he does a lot of things well. Uh, he loses that match 6-3, and three, but that was it was a really high level. And then he beats Daniel Galan in Orlando the next week. Galan had played so well, right? Third round, fourth round of the French Open and was one of the challenger superstars in 2020. Fertangelo beat him straight up 3-3, three and three, and that was a really good win for him. And then, of course, he loses a three-set physical battle to Mitchell Kruger, but you can't you can throw that one out because of how well those two know each other's games, former roommates, partner practice partners, etc. Uh, for him to come to Delray Beach, beat Kevin King two and two, take a set off Tiafo in the round of sixteen, that's a victory for Bjorn for Tangela. And so again, I just he does too many things well to be outside the top 150 for long. If he's healthy, I think that's where he ends up this season. I really do think he ends up back in the top 100, if healthy again, at some point during his career. Uh, but of course, that was the match breakdown I wanted to throw at you from Delray in terms of everything else that happened in both Delray Beach and Antalya. Nothing too crazy went down in the round of 16. You look again in Delray Beach, you had Roberto Quiroz, first quarterfinal for him of his career, 2-4 and four victory over Ivo, Ivo Karlovic. Gotta feel good for the former USC Trojan who 
has an ATP forehand, folks, and the other parts of his game continue to catch up, and this is just a great way to start his season. Cam Norrie continues to rock and roll. We'll talk about him more tomorrow or in our next show, but 2-5 and five victory over Adrian Manorino. And then Hubie Hercots starts off his season with a bang, 2-2 two and two over Daniel Galan. Hercots is your definition of a modern player, folks, and I know we'll talk about him more in a late, in our next episode as well. So, a great start to the season for Hubi. Those were your results in Delray. In terms of what we saw in Antalya, fairly straightforward, folks. Berrettini, Struff, Bublik, all seeds, all advancing. Jeremy Chardy, though, did knock off number three seed Fabio Fadini, 7-6-6-7-7-6. Chardy struggled a lot during the 2020 season. Of course, so did Fabio Fontanini with injuries, with health, with various different ailments. That's a fun 7-6-6-7-7-6 match that no one will get to see because, again, Antalya criminally does not have a legal stream for their feed this week, and hopefully that's the last time we'll say that here during this 2021 season. But that's all of your action from Sunday across the professional tennis world. Again, there are off-the-court stories we plan to address in full over the coming weeks. We get a bit of a hiatus next week, and by the way, you'll see no GSP aces of the day. I'm happy to make ITF picks for you, but uh, and if you want that, please let us know, and I'm happy to resume doing them, but until we get the restart of ATP WTA events, we may put that back on ice for the time being, but of course, again, we are now almost caught up on all of the first week action, quarterfinals, semifinals, finals breakdown coming up for you either later today or tomorrow, depending on when you're listening to this show, and of course, plenty of other guests, plenty of other things we have planned here at Cracked Rackets to help prepare all of you and help you all enjoy what should be a phenomenal 2021 season in the tennis world. Of course, college tennis starting this week. If you missed anything from our college contender series, I believe this week it's number two, Wake Forest. So Chris Halliorce and I talked to head coach Tony Bresky. Matt, Chris, and I break down the Deeks on our Great Shot podcast feed. And of course, Matt writes about them a little bit on our website, crackedrackets.com, which by the way, once you're there, you'll be able to find all of our content. So of course, our podcast, this one, the GSP, Cracked Interviews, Inside Out, The Sideline, Like, Rate, Subscribe, Review, share with your friends. You need those more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. Shout out as always to our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15 to let them know that we sent you there. But with that in mind, for my wonderful super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all later. Thanks, everyone.